I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Liam Milne, and you're listening to Sorry Papa. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with New Zealand-Australian champion Liam Milne about becoming an emotionally sound adult, the importance of the social aspects of face-to-face bridge, and the inherently funny nature of the game. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you? It feels so good to say that. <laughs> Been a while. <laughs> Jocelyn, it's great to see you. How was your time off? Oh, it was truly blissful, I must say. I <laughs> yeah. must say. Yes. I did something I've wanted to do for years, which is go to a a music camp for adults. It's called the Chamber Music Conference, but you know, we know it as a music camp. And it was just wonderful. Play all day and talk to people at night. And it was really lovely. I did not find a single person in the group who played bridge, but that was probably just as well. I did, of course, tell people about the podcast. And I was very gratified that quite a few people knew people who played and were excited to share the word about the pod with their bridge playing friends, which was great. I don't think I created any any converts to the game, however, during my brief time. Maybe if I go back next year, yeah. I'll have more opportunity to to ferret out some some bridge players to introduce people to this way of life. (laughs) So if this is like a camp, you're all sitting around having breakfast together, is that when you broach (laughs) to a bridge topic? 
Well, yes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then <laughs> late into the evening, of course. Um, yeah, no, uh, you know, you tell one person and then people tell other people. And people would just basically text. I would send them the link yeah. on their phones and they would text it to their friends. So it was hopefully very easy for people to receive because they would get it in the form of a link that they could just start listening. Yeah. And so listeners, subtext, if you know anybody who might be interested in the game, please share the information. And it'd be great too if you can um, tell them how easy it is to follow the show and listen to it on their phones. Yeah. Because what we're finding is people hear about the show, but they don't necessarily know how to find it again. So if you can help them to find it again, have it on their phones so that they can listen whenever they want, that'd be great. Right. And it's also easy to get it to automatically send the latest episode to your phone if you subscribe or follow or however the app instructs you to do. It's all free and you can just click a box and then you'll be following it, which means it will get uploaded into your phone every time there's a new episode. Yeah, so most of the apps just give you an option to check a box or to click the plus sign and then you get the the episodes on your phone whenever there's a new one. Yeah, you don't have to go and look for it. It will be automatically transmitted like magic to your phone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> magic. I love that. <laughs> so yeah, word of mouth, people. If you enjoy the show, chances are maybe some of your friends will as well. And so make sure to tell them about it. And we've got lots of great stuff coming up. That's one of the things I was doing on the break is just putting together some more excellent interviews. And we have a new merch store with lots of items for your enjoyment. So the link for that is on the website. And if anyone's looking for a bargain, and who isn't, we've got some great offers with discounts. So you can find those links also on the website now. Yeah, so check those out as well. So, Jocelyn, while we've been away, people have been writing. We have mail in the mailbag. Would you like me to share some of the oh, letters with you? I mean, I cannot tell you how much I have been missing these letters. I know. Well, the first one is just a very short note, actually, from a, from one of our favorite letter writers, Ryan. And he just wrote in to let us know that at a recent tournament, all four of his daughters won trophies playing together. And that was just such a sweet message. So I wanted to share that with you. So that's great, Ryan. And congratulations to your kids. And it's marvelous to know that they're all playing and playing together and having a lot of fun. Wow, that is great. Yes, yes. And we have heard from Alex, who has a theory about why the robots on BBO hesitate. <laughs> oh, we know what it is. It's to torture us. No. It's to torture us. <laughs> but he thinks that the reason the robots hesitate when they're about to win a trick is that they're deciding two things. One, should I win the trick? And what should I lead to the next trick? They only make that decision when their right-hand opponent's card is played. So I think Alex is saying that they are sentient. I think he's suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> they're smart and they are sequential in their reasoning and they go through all of the possible hand patterns that could be in play and then they make their decision and then they figure out their leads. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I like it a little better than the torturing, <laughs> but it feels like torture. It does. It absolutely does. We've also heard from our good friend Jim from the Chicago area. Jim is writing about our discussion about the Montreal Relay a little while back now. <laughs> My partner Jill and I play Montreal Relay, although we know it as Kennedy. Kennedy was taught to us by local bridge teacher Bob, and you are not alone in never having heard of it. We have gotten many strange looks when alerting the one diamond bid. One day in a sectional tournament, I opened one club, Jill responded one diamond, and I alerted. After explaining the alert, the person on my left, who I had never met before, looked at me and asked, how is it that you know Bob? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Bob ever knew she was so famous. Oh, my God. That's so funny. And in fact, they should now rename it again. Not Montreal Relay, not Kennedy. They can just call it Barb. (laughs) (laughs) We play play Barb. Barb. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Our next letter, Jocelyn, is from Norman Beck. Norman Beck. He had the story in the Bridge Bulletin about how He didn't have to worry when he was playing against Bob Hammond what his carding signals would mean because Bob would know. Oh, that's right. Yes, I love that story. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I'll know. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Norman's an expert player, no surprise. He's also a gambling expert. And get this, he's a magician. And you can find information about Norman online. Anyway, he writes... I work for Bob Hammond and play a fair amount with Bart Bramley, who's also a very esteemed player. At my very first tournament, a pairs game, my right-hand opponent opened one club. I had 13 points, a stiff club, and four cards in three other suits. I said double. Left-hand opponent said redouble, and it went pass, pass. I asked what redouble meant and was told it was 10-plus high-card points. I counted my right-hand opponent for 13, Me, I had 13. Left-hand opponent had 10, which comes to a total of 36. My partner has a bad hand. I better pass, I thought. (gasps) So at match points, they played one club, redoubled and made five. And he doesn't say whether they were vulnerable or not, but if they're not vulnerable, that's 1,030. And if they were vulnerable, that was 1,830. He concludes by saying, I never made that mistake twice. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Yes, you wouldn't. I'm sorry to say, yes, I once had that situation. Yes, where my right hand opponent opened one no trump. Yeah, I doubled. Left hand opponent redoubled. Pass, pass, and I passed. Yeah, yeah, it was very, very bad. Very sad day. Very in sad your day. bridge bridge history. Yes, but you've never done it again, right? I have never done it again. I guess it's one way to learn, probably. (laughs) You're saying this and I just know the next time we play it will come up and I'll do it. I know it. I know it in my soul. No, you will not. Well, let's hope not. Let's hope not anyway. Thanks very much, Norman, for sending in that story. That's marvellous. And our final letter today is from Anonymous. And when I read it to you, you will understand (laughs) why this person chooses to... Fly under the radar. Incognito. Incognito. (laughs) 
My partner and I signed up to play in a non-life master tournament that was being held in honour of a well-loved local bridge player who had recently passed away. It was a bit of a big deal event. There were a lot of people there. We hadn't been partners for very long and we were bitching at each other the entire time. She was like, it was your fault. And I'm like, no, it was your fault. And we were telling each other we sucked and we just did terribly, which I guess is no surprise. At the presentation ceremony, when the time came to announce the winners, my partner joked under her breath that it would be us. And I'm like, yeah, right, saying our names because we'd played so badly and we were going to kill each other. And then they said our names. (laughs) There was a big trophy. So we went up and they took our photo and the whole thing. And we're like, oh, my God, we can't believe it. We were so excited. We told everyone we knew. A few days later, I went to the local club and this guy who was a director connected with the event came up to me. He was really uncomfortable and he said, I have something horrible I have to tell you. You didn't win the tournament. They made a mistake. They'd scored two rounds in the wrong direction or something. So it turns out when we were saying, I can't believe we won, we were right because we didn't. (laughs) To this date, neither of us have told our husbands the truth. (laughs) what happened to the trophy well they sent a picture of them holding the trophy i don't know i assume they had to give it back but we've got a picture of it and i will put it on our instagram so that everybody can see it it's just hilarious that is so funny but the husbands don't know the husbands don't know don't tell the husbands (laughs) yes no one tell any husband about this no no i assume the husbands aren't listening and if not oh well oops (laughs) so if anything fun happened in your world while we were on break please tell us about it send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on instagram or send us a voice message these links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com along with some other good stuff coming up next our interview with liam milne New Zealand-Australian champion Liam Milne is a regular member on the Australian Open team, having won roughly 20 Australian national titles, and plays on professional teams in both Australia and the U.S. Some highlights from his career include taking first place at the 2011 Asia-Pacific Open Pairs, ninth place in the 2014 World Open Pairs, third place in the 2019 Risinger, and making the semifinals of the 2022 Spin Gold. Liam is also an award-winning bridge journalist and has been the author of several prize-winning articles, including the 2019 International Bridge Press Association Declarer Play of the Year Award for A Hand Played by Michael Wibley. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. Yeah, absolutely. I had a pretty funny hand uh, last week. Basically, my hand was a stack 10 to 7 hearts and out. And it was a 10 to 13, one no trump on my left. My partner doubled. I went past, which had some meaning. I didn't ask. And I bid four hearts. And dummy came down to queen with queen to four hearts. So I had 11 hearts between me. And I straight away worked out that there was king doubled and heart on my left. The balanced hand. I had 10 to 13, one no trump. I, I checked that it showed a balanced hand. And 
yep, there we go. King X of hearts offside, no good. And I've got three losers outside the soup. So I was trying to work out how to play this hand and if there was any chance to make it. And I eventually worked out a sneaky plan. I roughed something towards my hand and let the jack of hearts towards the dummy, guaranteed to give up a heart trick. But the guy on my left had no idea what points his partner had. So I was pretty sure he would duck from King Doubledon playing his partner for the singleton ace. And it went low and low and king. <laughs> and I let one down on my contract. <laughs> I asked the guy, well, let us up. I thought, yeah, low singleton heart there. But he said, well, up until the second round of the bidding, I had a five, two, three, three, but then it changed. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was a good one. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> I was the only one to go down on this contract, I'm pretty oh. sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it arranged his cards wrong. Sure. It was all a setup. <laughs> I, I actually thought that hand was quite nicely plated too. Up until the moment I went down. <laughs> yeah, that was unlucky. Yeah. What's the biggest schlamozzle you've ever made at the table in addition to this? I, I, I've made many, many screw-ups at the, at the table over the years. Uh, and I, I have a bit of gratitude for those situations because you, you do learn from them. And I, I think that every... You know, bridge player needs uh, a sense of you know a deal, dealing with uh, dealing with heartbreak in order to get to to the top level. You need to know how to lose. I remember one in particular which had a, a big effect, which was in the final of a of an Australian team's trial. Early on in the final, uh, I had nineteen points opposite my partner's strong club opening, who was showing sixteen plus. I was pretty sure we were going to be the Grand Slam. I had a and with uh, queen fourth of spades. And I found out my partner had four spades, asked him for key cards, he had all of those, and a bit more. And he ended up jumping to seven spades. And clever me, uh, I thought we had 13 tricks, and I was worried about someone having four to the jack of spades. So I pulled to seven no trumps. And it turns out we did have 13 tricks, as long as we were playing in spades. spades. <laughs> <laughs> and in no trumps, we needed a finesse. And it was, it was true justice that the finesse didn't work. Uh, oh. And the other table was playing in seven spades, so um, we lost 17 on the hand. We ended up losing. Well, we were ahead in the match, but we ended, at that point, we ended up losing 17 and going on to lose the final by 50 amps or so. And, yeah, that, that was one that's uh, brought back many memories over the years. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I learned not to assume too much about, you know, top tricks. Partner was bidding it on the strength of their spades. So what else have you learned with some of these muck-ups? What's some of the wisdom you've gleaned from your mistakes? Ah, uh, well, there's the, the old classic. I mean, you have to go on to the next hand and, and have a, a routine for resetting and, and getting back into it. Also, you know, it's very important. I've learned to take responsibility for your own actions. It's, it's all too common, unfortunately, in, in bridge and in many areas in life for players to defend their own actions or for people to try to blame others for, for their own failings. I try to look for my part in, in whatever happened first <laughs> before uh, looking around the room to my partner and teammates and opponents. Yeah, if, if you look inwards first, you can often learn something from a mistake. But if you look outwards and, and start blaming, you often end up annoying other people. Is that something that you had to really work on or is it something that you found came fairly naturally? <laughs> I, I wish I started playing bridge as a fully formed, emotionally sound adult. <laughs> but unfortunately, this was something that I had to work on. And, you know, it's like any other skill, I believe. If you realize that this is a problem for you, you know, being conscious of what's going on in, in your brain and, and the things that cause you to make mistakes in that area 
and, and practicing those things, yeah, is there something that, that everyone can work on? Um, no matter how good or bad a partner you are at the moment, you can become a, an excellent partner. And uh, yeah, the, the many people have had this story where they've uh, started off as a bit of a brat, but uh, gotten better and, and now they're quite pleased to play with. So yeah, so that's always nice to see. I know that this tip is one of Bob Hammond's well-known tips, and this leads me very nicely to ask you, how many times have you played on a team with Bob Hammond? Um, twice. I played with him uh, on a team with him in the 2019 Fall Nationals, which included the Risinger, and also on the 2022 uh, Summer Nationals, which included the Spingold. And yeah, Bob's just a fantastic guy, fantastic guy to play with, obviously fantastic player, but he has so many stories from over the years. He's had a very full bridge life and outside life as well. Uh, and and there are many people that's rare to say that you've dedicated your whole life to bridge. You might not have many stories to tell from your professional life, but Bob does. Yeah, he's, he's just a superb teammate and superb person to play with. Bob Hammond's obviously such a key figure in the bridge world. What was it like having that close relationship with him? Were you nervous at all? Were you, how did you get to know each other? Can you share with us some of the details about the experience of playing with him? Sure. So there are quite a few links between Bob and Australia. I first played with Bart Bramley over in America in 2017. And Bart works with Bob. And I think Bart was the connection there to Bob. Yeah, I was a bit starstruck when I first uh, heard that Bob was interested in playing on a team with us. And yeah, he's he's just been fantastic. He's been uh, a huge supporter of Australian aspirations in the US. He likes the way we play. He likes uh, the brand of game that we play. It's it's pretty no nonsense. It's pretty aggressive, and I think that sits in quite well with uh, how how Bob likes to play bridge. And yeah, I I just love going out to dinner with him. And yeah, it, it can't be quite awe-inspiring hearing some of these stories. He'll say, oh, yeah, that was just like that hand from the 1967 trials where this happened and this happened and it always finishes with some amazing play, which I've never heard of. And he just got this all on immediate recall, which is pretty impressive, really. I, I hope like, I hope to be like that at his age, having been around for, you know, 60 years in the bridge world or longer. Yeah, it's, it's really quite awe-inspiring to, to see him play and to, to hear all the things he has to say about, about the game. Liam, what do you love most about Bridge? Well, Bridge is a fantastic challenge for many reasons, but I've always loved the social side of Bridge. And for me, the best part of a Bridge tournament is hanging out after play at the end of the day and going through funniest hands of the day with my friends. Bridge is a very funny game. There are many, many hilarious things that happen at the table. And going to a tournament, and heading out to the bar afterwards or heading back to our apartment and going through the hands uh, always leads to a lot of laughter. And when you're going through the hands and drinking with your friends, what are the sorts of things that are particularly funny and noteworthy? Are they missed opportunities? Are they crazy aggressive moves? The opponents? The opponents <laughs> acting like they, you know, didn't see that coming or... Yeah, uh, well, I think the funniest things are always when someone tries to be a hero and it either works or doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, a really aggressive bid that 
either works fantastically or ideally doesn't <laughs> or a heroic play like my uh, my little jack of hearts towards the queen <laughs> or yeah all sorts of things can happen i mean things that people say things that people do the sort of players that people make i just find bridge a really really fun game and it sort of certainly helped me stay keen on bridge all these years it's it's not just a game to me it's also a, a really nice microcosm of human nature and you get to see lots of funny things that you've never seen elsewhere. Do they tend to be things where somebody tried to psych out their opponents or, you know, false card or fool their opponents in some strategic play sort of along the lines of what you had described with your Jack? Yeah, uh, those are the best ones uh, when a top player gets their comeuppance. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you were playing bridge? Well, there are too many to count, but I had one recently where... I was playing against a fellow Australian professional, Jimmy Wallace, and his partner, Bill Nash. Jimmy opened one diamond, pass. Bill said two no trumps, which was alerted as a invitational diamond raise. Pass back to Jimmy, who says three diamonds. Pass back to Bill, who persists with three no trumps. And I lead something in. Bill makes 11 tricks really quickly. Jimmy is a little bit curious about how strong a hand his partner had. He says, oh. Billy had quite a, quite a strong hand, man. Bill says, well, I was worried about my two little clubs. Cryptic answer. Jimmy says, well, it can't have been that worried. You keep going with your no trumps. And Bill says, well, can't I be worried in private? And I, <laughs> <laughs> the whole table was just in tears of laughter, and that's, that's become a bit of a bridge motto of mine now. You know, can't I be worried in private? <laughs> that's great. That's very funny. Do you have a catchphrase or motto that you use when you're preparing for a game or playing? Uh, well, I've experimented with various sort of cue words, which, you know, you, you say inwardly to yourself during a match. And these can often be quite good to, to refocus. And the one I found works the best for me is count. Because everything in Bridge is about counting. If you're not counting, 
uh, you're you're going to get caught in some, in some trap, and you don't need to know why you're counting, but you have to be doing it on every hand if you want to do well in this game. What's something that a regular partner of yours would likely say is the best thing about playing with you? Well, I had a nice compliment from one of my partners, uh, Sophie Ashton, who uh, recently said she found me very calming uh, as an influence opposite the table. And, you know, that's that's not something I've always learned from my partners. Uh, so it was, it was really gratifying to hear that and knowing that I've made some progress there. I, I think that my partners, well, I, ho- I hope that my partners would, would think that I'm quite good at in the competitive bidding side. I don't consider myself a world-class declarer or defender. I'm, I managed to get along okay, but in the bidding, I, I seem to be able to make the right bid in, in competition quite often. And whether that's just come from lessons learned over the years and doing everything wrong once before moving on, or whether that's come from discussing things with top players, I'm not quite sure, but I certainly seem to be be okay at that side of the gap. So then flipping to the other side of the coin, what might be some areas that your partners would like you to work on a little harder, if indeed there is one? Well, I've always been quite hungry for slabs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they say, you know, give your partner a range of hands and see if your hand fits with theirs and see if you should <laughs> go for slab. The problem is I'm very good at giving partner hands, hands that fit my hand perfectly. And off we go with corner trumps. Uh, I'll be guilty of getting us to a few poor slabs over the years. So maybe I'm, uh, can be a little bit gung ho in that area. Is it something that you're consciously trying to rein in or you just accept this as part of your style? No, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm a little bit terrified of slams now uh, after having gone down in the 100th or 200th slam. <laughs> so these days when I'm thinking and thinking, should I bid one more? Sometimes I just relook at my hand and think, it would be totally crazy to bid one more. And that's often correct. Uh, it's not a close decision at all. So sometimes I just need to snap back to reality and really look at my hand in the same way that other people would. What's the most challenging aspect of a bridge partnership? And I'm talking about a, like a longer term partnership. When you're playing with someone and you have serious aspirations to do well in tournaments or maybe even to represent your country, and it's going to be a long-term partnership and, and your aim is to do well, something that every partnership needs to resolve is how they're going to deal with the bad boards and how they're going to deal with mistakes that each partner makes, and especially the ones where it feels like a partnership mistake, where on a hand we both could have defended better, one player was responding to the other one's signal, that sort of thing. And knowing how you discuss those, where you can do it in a constructive way and move on with a result and a resolution rather than just ill feeling. It is something that many partnerships struggle with at all levels. And that's something that's worth discussing. And I, I don't think enough partnerships discuss the abstract things like, are you okay with me leaving the table during a match and going to get a glass of water? Um, or do you prefer me to stay there and play the dummy? And if we have a bad board, can we talk about it afterwards? Or should we talk about it a week after? That sort of thing. And and those things are actually what make and break partnerships, the feeling of mutual respect and progress happening rather than a feeling of everyone out for themselves and defend your own actions. How do you have that conversation? Because it's not just a question of stating the things that are important to you, but trying to identify 
what it is for your partner that's important for them. How do, how do you begin to have that conversation? That's a really hard question and it's, there's no answer which applies to everyone. It depends on the personalities of the players involved. I've tried to have you know very honest discussions with my partners in the past about how we do these sorts of things and it can be really hard. It's, it's something that every partnership needs to work on and it's, it's very rare that both players are in such a you know, chilled out mode of thinking that they can happily discuss their mistakes straight afterwards. And the, the problem is if you are too chilled about it, maybe you don't care enough, right? And that's going to hold you back for trying to get hungry for success. So it, it's a really tight balance mm. between really wanting to win mm. and finding some acceptance of the times that you don't and learning from those and, um, and growing as a partnership. It's a lot easier for players to make personal progress, I find. Partnership progress is often very hard. And sometimes when you start with a new partner, you're back to square one with some of that stuff. So that's, yeah, that's a challenge for many top peers. And, and you hear that, you know, peers break up because of this sort of stuff. So it is important. But I imagine some of the difficulty is even knowing yourself well enough to know what you need. Like I, I can see that often it's not until there's a moment of tension that you realize, hey, actually that's really important to me or I can see that's important to you but I don't care. Have you had any situations like that where you've come to understand something about yourself through the experience of playing with someone and then needing to have the conversation? Absolutely. But what I want to know is what it was for you. Well, that's a hard question. Oh, fair enough. That's fine. That's <laughs> it's, fine. It's, uh, it's something which maybe my partners would know but, you know, it's very hard to know yourself. Mm, 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 mm. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was putting you on the spot. I wish I could answer that. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've had moments of tension at times in partnerships. If you think back on a key moment that could have been a crisis or was a crisis, what did it tend to be around? Um, I think most partnerships, including mine, uh, struggle when they have a very poor result in a tournament. It's the most common time that uh, partnerships break up, in my experience, is after a really bad loss. And unfortunately, right, the, that loss may not be really indicative of your strength as a partnership. Everyone can have bad days. Everyone can have one bad board. And, you know, it can make a huge difference whether you win by one or lose by one, despite the fact that your level of performance was basically the same. And those repercussions of those results of tournaments have huge ripple effects across the bridge community at the top level. There was a, well, there have been several Australian teams trials where the margin has been won up. And if you're on the winning team, the partnership goes on and goes overseas and plays for Australia. And if you're on the losing side, the partnership breaks up and goes nowhere. <laughs> and it's, it's a difference between plus or minus one up. And my advice on that side would simply be that, you know, one result does not make you a, poor bridge player or a good bridge player or a, or a poor partnership or a good partnership. And those feelings of crisis immediately after a big loss, they fade in time. And it's, yeah, it's important to, to learn how to lose as, as well as learning how to win. Is there a hot button issue in bridge that's particularly important to you? There are two at the moment, which I think are really important. The first one is cheating at all levels of the game is is a curse upon our game. And unfortunately, the revelations of Boyer in 2015 
of Avon Wilsmore's book about the blue team and even the most recent uh, online cheating revelations about top players uh, cheating in online tournaments through the pandemic. These have unfortunately all shown a pattern that the relevant authorities don't have a handle on this. And bridge administrators around the world need to do more to detect cheating and to punish it. We can't have a fair game without a fair playing field. And if we don't have a fair game, people will stop playing. And that's a really existential threat to bridge. The other one is online bridge. I think it's been fantastic during the pandemic. It's provided a really convenient way for us to play and to get together, especially platforms like RealBridge and others um, that have a, a video feed that's increased the social dynamic. But online bridge is lacking many features of the, of the social element of bridge and you're not playing with real cards. And the growth of bridge depends on the social aspect. People come to the bridge club, not necessarily for their bridge, but also to see their friends and to hang out after the game and to talk to their opponents and to see their partner. And we need to find a way to get players back into real life bridge clubs if we want bridge to expand and survive. Do you have a favorite tournament? Yeah. Uh, so the, the obvious one is the Gold Coast Congress um, in Australia every February. It's a fantastic tournament and players come from all around the world and they always come away raving. It's really well organized and it's a really nice place to play bridge as well. I, I also have a soft spot for the New Zealand National Congress being originally from New Zealand. It always feels like coming home. It's also where I got my first taste of success in the bridge world. But these days I'm playing more and more in the US Nationals and they're, they're amazingly fun. You get to play against all the top players and especially the Fall Nationals, which has border match events like the Risinger. I've had some success in those events and yeah, the, the Fall Nationals is really the top of bridge in my experience. Do you feel any tension when you're competing against New Zealand? There's always a little extra something when we're playing against uh, against New Zealand. It used to be that the partnership that I was in often did not play against New Zealand. <laughs> For whatever reason, my non-playing captains on the Australian team had a habit of sitting me out. Maybe they thought, you know, I'd be overwhelmed by the moment. But in the last Bermuda Bowl, my partner James and I, who were both originally from New Zealand, got sent in to play New Zealand, and we had a big win against them. And my captain afterwards said, I thought, you know, you'd be more familiar with what they were doing and that you'd be able to deal with it. And it worked out really well. And it's always it's always great fun to play against them. It's, it's a nice atmosphere. We know everyone really well, but we all really want to win. It's very important to have the trans-Tasman Brady rights. What's the most important thing to learn about defence? I think that in addition to counting, which you need to be doing, working out what the likely shape of the hand is based on the Clara's line of play is really important. Often you have very limited information early in the hand, but the main thing you do, you can tell is the Clara's intentions. And I really think Victor Molo was onto something with his rueful rabbit. The rabbit didn't know much about the uh, technique, but he often would just try to not do what they wanted him to do. And that was good enough to defeat the hand many times. So yeah, working out what's going on based on what the clearer is trying to do and then just doing the opposite can often be a, a good line of defense. Liam, you've mentioned Victor Molo. Are there any other books that have been particularly instructive or useful for you in your development as a player? Okay, so I've got two recommendations. One's a, 
a new one, and one's a classic. The, the new one is called Master of Bridge Psychology, and it's about um, the Swedish player Peter Frieden. And it has many plays, such as uh, Leading the Jack of Hearts from Ace Jack 10 the Queen Ball. One really cool one that he had was against Max Strother and Rodwell. He had 10 doubleton club in the dummy, opposite his Ace King third, no suit contract. They lead the Queen, obviously from Queen Jack. It went low, low. He won the ace and played a low one back towards the dummy. And of course, the player sitting with Queen Jack knows his partner has the king. Why are we getting a trick out of this? The clever has ace king. So it low, the 10 1, came back to his hand and took a discard on his king. And it's plays that you'd never think of, you'd, ne- you'd never dream of. And it really opened my eyes to all of the possibilities of tactical and psychological plays in bridge. A classic one is called Defensive Signals by Marshall Miles. It went out of print, and it's just come back into print, which I'm really happy to see. I immediately went out and bought three copies. It's a superb handbook for what your defensive signals should mean, and also for how to think about defense in general. It's a handbook for what your cards should mean when you're defending the hand. Some of the bits of advice are not completely up to date, but they're still very relevant. And it's also got many chapters on just how to think about defending a hand, all the different sorts of plays you need to have in your arsenal. And it's got a quiz after each chapter, which makes it really good for learning and developing. That's great. You bought three copies. Are they all for you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I recommend the book so often that people always ask if I have a copy. So I like to have a few that I can give out if necessary. (laughs) Good idea. Is there something that people might be very surprised to learn about you? Um, I think, yeah, most people think of me as, you know, a bridge player and a bridge rider. I'm also very keen to, to get outdoors as much as I, as much as possible. Um, I've climbed a 6,000 meter mountain in the Himalayas, keen skier and hiker. And yeah, uh, I've just been getting into rock climbing recently. I don't really give off that appearance when I'm at a bridge tournament, but uh, yeah, I, it's a really important part of my life and uh, it helps keep me balanced in between bridge tournaments. So balance is important. Do you implement some of those philosophies when you're trying to unwind at a bridge tournament, either at the end of the day or after the tournament? In the last few years, I've become a lot more conscious of needing to maintain uh, your own sanity at, at bridge tournaments and after bridge tournaments. And having a routine for how to relax, I think, is important for everyone. I've become a lot more conscious on the importance of sleep. You can't stay out all night talking about the hands. You do need to get in a solid eight hours if possible. And that's made a huge difference, especially when you're playing in a long tournament like the Spingold, where, you know, you, you play for 11 hours a day. <laughs> Jocelyn's making goggle eyes. I don't think I knew that. 11 hours. Yeah. Uh, so. How many hands? <laughs> only 60, but they take a long time. The rate of play in some of the American nationals is a bit slower than in Australia and New Zealand and start play at 9.30 and often we were finishing at 8.30 in the evening. So there is a lunch break and there is a little bit of time in between, but you start the day at 9.30 and it goes for 11 hours from then. So once it's finished for the day, do you just want to go straight back to your hotel room or do you go and have a drink with friends? How, what do you do? I, I would imagine I'd feel shattered. Absolutely, yeah, at, at, uh, the most recent time I played in the US, it felt like all we were doing was playing bridge, scoring up and eating food in between as much as we could and getting sleep. 
there really is not as much time for socializing as I would like, you know, if you're trying to do well. I've tried doing both routes in the past. We spend every night at the bar making friends, but <laughs> your friends might suffer as a result. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget? Uh, in terms of gadgetry, uh, my partnership in Australia has become known for using two diamonds as flattery, four spades and five hearts and an opening hand. It's from the 80s. It went completely out of favor. I don't think anyone in Australia was playing it for many years, but I learned it from Bart Bramley and um, brought it back to Australia. And now quite a few people seem to be playing it. It's just, it's just a bit of fun. I, I think it does win on it on average, but it's nice to have a little signature gadget. Also, anything that helps you out in competitive auctions. A really simple example. Your partner opens one of a minor. The next player overcalls one heart. Playing double shows four spades and one spade shows five. That's an example of an excellent convention. It's really important for your partner to know how many spades you have when the next person goes four hearts, for example. So anything like that, where it's all about helping your partner know how many of a suit you have in a competitive auction before things get too hot and heated at the four and five level, that's all good stuff. What about conventions that you don't like so much? I've always been a big fan of Forno Trump's asking for aces. And that means that I'm not much of a fan of kickback, Minerwood, Gerber, all these fancy ways of asking for aces. And in my experience, even good partnerships have muck-ups when they don't know whether a bit is ace asking or not. And this can lead to all sorts of trouble. So I've, I've always preferred to stick with Forno Trump's. What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given that you can share with our listeners? Well, uh, I think I read this written by, by Boyer Brogelin, and he, he had a really good tip, which was when something unexpected happens, someone shows out that you weren't expecting or someone wins a trick which you weren't expecting them to, it's a really good time to stop and pause and reevaluate before you move on because the most likely meaning of this unexpected event is that your original plan is now not going to work because you were basing it on information that's changed. And far too many hands are thrown away when players continue with their original plan despite the fact the landscape of the hand has totally changed. So my best bridge tip would be that when something unexpected happens at the table, take stock, take a pause, work out how to change your original plan to adapt to the new information. Liam, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been so great chatting to you. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been terrific. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Liam Milne. Thank you also to our listener supporters who make the show possible. And a special shout out to friend of the show, Larry Cohen. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Paul Chirasso and Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show, which gets you a special insider's newsletter. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. 
And remember, as Liam says, when something unexpected happens at the table, pause, take stock, then change your plan to account for that new information. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.